0: Father, we love you, Lord. We need you. God, your word is a spiritual book, and without your Holy Spirit making its meaning, uh, Lord, its truths plain to us, uh, we run the risk of just engaging in an exercise of futility. And so, Lord, we, we ask for the help. Lord, would you deploy uh, your, your your spirit in truth uh, over our hearts, over our lives? We want to, we want to see your word for everything that it is, for all that it contains and and um, Lord, we don't want to just know it intellectually. we want to have it applied to our hearts and our lives. We want our minds to receive it not just in assent but Lord, we want our our will submitted to your word and and so God help us not to be just hearers but to be doers of your word. Lord, we pray your blessing over our brothers and sisters all over the world uh, we've got we've got a um, disciples in Lee Summit, and in Tampa, and in Boston, and in Dallas, Uh, Lord, in in Denver, in Laramie, in Nairobi, in Vietnam, um, Japan. Lord, we just ask for your blessing over our brothers and sisters, that today would be a profitable time in your word. The Lord Jesus said that he'd build his church, and and so Father, we're trusting for that work to continue today, and, and so Lord, help us. God, thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to worship in this way. Um, If we wanted to, we could open all of the windows. Uh, We don't have to hide. We don't have to meet underground, and and we're grateful. Lord, help us to be bold in our faith. Lord, help help us to be worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to worship you with the whole of our lives. We don't want it just to be a few songs that we sing every week, but Lord, the the totality of who we are should be given completely in worship of you. And so Lord, would you bless us as stewards? Would you bless us as servants? Would you bless us as givers? Uh, Lord, we want everything in our life to be managed for your glory. And then, Lord, um, all of the work that we do together, the way that the the, the giving is invested and spent, uh, the way it's used to support ministry, God, we ask that it would all fall out to your glory. Lord, let us win souls and make disciples and train and equip people for the mission, not just at 40th and Walnut, but, Lord, all over the world and we'll trust you to be glorified through it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Genesis chapter nine and what we're gonna see is God's promises again to man and and, uh, right out of the chute, we'll uh, pick it up next time, but we'll see how man messes it up. Uh, That's where we're at. Genesis chapter nine and verse one says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now where have we heard that before? We heard that in Genesis chapter one, didn't we? Look down in verse seven. God's command to man, and you be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. God's mission for man is very clear. He's not playing around what his will is for his creation is that we would be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. This is the commission that was given to Adam. It's renewed here in Genesis chapter nine and verse one. Renewed is your first blank in your notes. Uh, This is not a new commission. This is the same commission that God gives in every age to all of his people. Uh, It's the exact same commission that was given to Adam in chapter one. And uh, you know, male and female created he them. God makes a man and he makes a woman. They are responsible now for filling the entire planet with sons of God. Adam, according to Luke chapter three, he is the son of God. Why is Adam a son of God? And we looked at this. This is really review for us, isn't it? A son of God, we found as we compared our cross references, we find out that Adam is a son of God, the celestial hosts, the angels, they're sons of God, and born again New Testament Christians are sons of God. A son of God, therefore, is a direct creation of God. That's what we found they all have in common. Sons of God are direct creations of God. You say, well, I was the offspring of my mom and my dad. Well, if you're born again, the Bible says you're actually born again. You're a new creature in Christ. You're a whole nother thing. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual birth that takes place and you now become a new creature in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're a new creature in Christ. Your whole life is now new, it's changed. So Adam and Eve had this responsibility to reproduce sons of God to replenish the earth. Well, you know they, they, they didn't keep the commandment. There's one negative prohibition in the garden. They fail. Adam and Eve both take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate it. They are now naked in their sin before God. They're hiding from God in the nakedness, the depravity of their sin. God has to hunt them down. Uh, We saw God's plan for for recovery. Uh, An animal was slain and, and skins were made to cover the nakedness of their sin. So with sin comes the shedding of innocent blood we saw that in genesis chapter 3 but then following that right following this fall of man we get this prophecy in genesis 315 that the seed of the woman will crush satan's head satan would bruise his heel but but he would destroy satan So immediately, what we're seeing in Genesis is Satan going after the seed of the woman. Cain kills Abel. In Genesis chapter six, it's so bad, we see a corruption of the entire genome. All flesh, the Bible says, is corrupted before the Lord. Only Noah is upright in his generations. And so now, with this reset on humanity, the mission is restarted. Be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth. You see this same commission given to Abraham when the seed of the woman that's to produce the skull crusher. I like saying it that way. You're just gonna have to bear with me. Jesus, the skull crusher. Okay, so uh, that's what you do to a bad snake, right? That's, that's how it works. Okay, so um, now, the, now the Genesis 3.15 prophetic lens zeroes in on Abraham and Abraham's family. Well, what does God say to Abraham? 15. Genesis 15, five, he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars. This isn't like tell the stars something that you know about that they need to know. Tell is an old English word for count. Number the stars. Tell the stars. What? If thou be able to number them. That's what I love about the word of God. Anytime there's a word you're fuzzy on, pay attention to what it's saying in its context. Tell the stars, can you number them? Count the stars, can you number them? See if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. What's the mission for Abraham? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Same commission is given to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 24. The Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and I will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And then it's given on to Israel. You see it in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse nine. Same commission, I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. What's he saying to the nation of Israel? You're going to be fruitful and multiply. You see the same disciple, the the same disciple. You see the same commission given to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus comes to the disciples after his death, burial and resurrection what does he say? He spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I want want you to go through the whole world teaching them. Those that respond, what do we do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even unto the end of the world, amen. Go into all the world, teach all nations, be fruitful. What are you doing? You're winning souls. Those who believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we baptize them by immersion and they now are the ones that we teach all things whatsoever the Lord, whatsoever his word commands. We win them to Christ, we disciple them and we teach them how to disciple others. Paul gives us the blueprint in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses one and two. You see the blueprint, you see the philosophy of how this great commission takes place. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So that's how it works. Tim is one to Christ, so Paul teaches him whatsoever things the Lord has commanded, not just to Tim, but everyone that Paul is discipling, and so what does Paul tell Timothy? What you heard me teach you, go teach faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So right there, you've got four generations of discipleship in one verse, right? Do you see it? That's how discipleship works, what you learn What you're learning here at MBT, you invest in investors. You're looking for faithful men and women. Now here's the problem. The the, the faithful is defined, right? The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So the faithful are those who shall be able to teach others also. They don't just get for themselves they get in order to give. They're investors. So, uh, so what you're learning here at MBT, you're looking for people to invest that into. And you're looking for those that will do the same. What you learn in the word of God, you wanna be able to teach others also that will go on and do the same. Here's the problem. The Bible says a faithful man who can find. Uh, I was sharing this with somebody yesterday. It seems like it's, it's really one in a thousand. Get a thousand people who consider the church. Maybe a hundred of those will say, You know what? I want to be a disciple. Most of them haven't counted the cost. Typically, 10 out of 100 move forward as learners, they will move forward as disciples of Christ. But it's really one in a thousand that goes on to teach others also. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm praying for you to be one in a thousand. One in a thousand. That's what we need. One in a thousand. And that's, I'll just give that to you as homework. Uh, do a study on faithful, do a study on a thousand, and, and see if, if you think there's something to that. It's interesting that that's been the guesstimate, that uh, the guesstimate conclusion I've come to after 30 years of, of, of just making disciples. So here's four generations. Paul is teaching his disciples. Timothy is among that number. Timothy teaching future faithful disciples, and then they go on to make their own disciples. This is how we're fruitful when we win people to Christ. But we're multiplying when we're we're training disciplers, those who will go and win and disciple others. Be fruitful, multiply, and if we'll keep being fruitful and multiplying, guess what we will do? We'll replenish the earth. That is the objective for God's people throughout the ages. And so this same commission is being given to Noah and Noah's sons. God blesses Noah in verse one, and his sons. So it's not a commission just given to Noah, but Noah's whole family. Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Verse seven, you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. So we can't miss the connection between Noah and Adam. Um, You know, if I was just playing if I was just you know spitballing in terms of what happens here, um, here's Noah upright in his genealogies. We talked about the Lord saying that you know what's the world going to be like in the coming of the Son of Man. Well, it'll be like the days of Noah. And one of the things that we speculated, based on the long life, the the perfect genome of humanity at its creation. Um, we speculated that the population of the world at the time of the flood could have been as high as our current population, maybe as high as 12 to 15 billion. Uh, it would have been a rapid multiplication that would take place, more land mass, different climate, long life. Okay, so, so it, it, was, it was conservatively the population uh, that we now see on planet Earth and so here's one guy who's upright in his generations. He's perfect in his generations. He's complete, he's intact. And if I had to speculate, he would have been the spitting image of Adam, right? If I had to speculate, he would have had, um, he would have had the capacity for, genetically, for humanity to be restarted in him. All of us have, I mean, everybody in this room is a distant cousin. No matter what, you're marrying your cousin if you're a Bible believer. Just stay away from the first cousins. Do your best to avoid the second cousins and then after that you lost track anyway and and, you you just do the best that you can. But uh, husbands, wives, you could call each other legitimately (laughs) cuz, because our greatest grandfather is Noah, right? Everybody in this room is related. Hey cuz. You, doing? Okay. you say, well, we don't look the same. Well, we'll get to that. So there's a common, there's, there are commonalities between Adam and Noah. Both Adam and Noah replenish the earth. And you remember what we saw in Genesis chapter one and verse two? We, saw, we, we put between verse one and verse two, chronologically, that's where Satan's rebellion first takes place. It explains our cross-references. It absolutely explains Isaiah 45, verse 18. God did not create the earth, he says, formless and void, okay? He creates it a kingdom to be inhabited. And so so we put Satan's fall right between Genesis 1 and verse 2. So both are replacing fallen races. If the celestial hosts are the sons of God, and we know from Revelation chapter 12, at least one-third of them, this is going to be conservative, at least one-third of them have followed Satan in his rebellion, God is a god of restoration. If he loses a third of his sons, he has to see them restored, right? So surprise, no surprise, when he makes Adam, Luke chapter 3 at the end of the chapter, Adam is called the son of God. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. So both replace fallen races, both receive authority and dominion, both partake of forbidden fruit. We'll see this later on. Um, Noah plants a vineyard and and he gets into trouble. The sin in both cases results in their nakedness. Adam takes forbidden fruit and now he's naked. He he, He sees the nakedness of his sin. He hides himself from the Lord. Noah, (laughs) <laughs> partakes of forbidden fruit and his uh, he ends up naked uncovered in his tent both have three named sons and both have one son who is a type of Christ and another son who is a type of antichrist uh, it's just it's just amazing the parallels between noah and adam both have a son who receive a curse and both receive their commission following a flood do you see that I'll give you a second to write that down. Both Adam and Noah replenish the earth, they replace fallen races, receive authority, partake of forbidden fruit that results in their nakedness, have three named sons. One of those sons will be a type of Christ in both cases. Another of those sons will be a type of antichrist in both cases. Who's the type of Christ in Adam's lineage? Who did we see? Abel, yeah. Who's the type of antichrist in Adam's family? It's Cain. All right, he's a perfect type of Christ, isn't he? In Noah's case, we'll see a type of Christ. We'll see a type of antichrist. I'm not gonna spoil it. You can read ahead and see if you can figure it out. Both have a son who receive a curse. Cain was cursed. We'll see it in Noah's family as we move forward. And both are commissions. So everybody got their blanks filled in? Point number two, the commission notice is amended. There are a few caveats now. Let's pick it up in verse two. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the field and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Thank God. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. What can you eat now in Genesis chapter nine? Let the whole church say, everything, right? I mean, it's all on the menu, thank God. So in this new order, there's no vegetarian. Uh, well, you know, you can be a vegetarian, but you don't have to be a vegetarian anymore. Glory to God in the highest. Ribeye steak is proof that God is good and that he loves us with all of his heart. When you eat a ribeye steak, you're never the same. I grew up eating hot dogs and fried bologna sandwiches, but one day I grew up and I ate a ribeye steak. Guess guess how many ribeye, I'm sorry, let me rephrase this. Guess how many fried bologna sandwiches I've had since I've had that ribeye steak? Guess, zero. Guess how many ribeye steaks I've had since that first one? I could never guess. There's been a few, okay? There's been been a number. So we're not, we don't have to be vegetarians anymore. You can be, but you don't have to be. Fear and dread of man is now on the animal kingdom because they know they're on the menu. And the animals are no longer docile. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the field. So animals now become hunters, but also the hunted. And man is absolutely a hunter at this point. Um, You know, with vegetarianism, you you know there's there there is a connection. Okay, so if you're a vegetarian this morning, I'm not calling you out. There have been seasons in my life where I've been absolutely vegetarian. Um, I I have done this on purpose. It doesn't make sense, but I have done it. Uh, okay, so that sounds insulting, but uh, you know I'll probably do it again, okay? Um, but there is a connection between vegetarian philosophy and false religion, and it is kind of an odd thing. Uh, there can be a connection between vegetarianism and, and correct li- religion, but I, I just want you to understand that there, and I don't know why, I don't know how it works, but since Genesis chapter nine, uh, a vegetarian diet, gives you spiritual sensitivity. Maybe I should put it that way. Uh, Pember in his book Earth's Earliest Ages talks about how uh, men have observed that a vegetarian diet facilitates entrance and control by demonic spirits. A lot of people who want a muse, they want an inner spirit guide. They actually, you know, people who will pursue many times the martial arts, for example, or or whatever the the discipline is, but they want to make contact with an inner spirit guide. If they have trouble making contact, they will take up a vegetarian diet to facilitate that contact. By the way, if you've got an inner spirit guide, this being of light that's helping you through life, I've got bad news for you. Okay, biblically, that is not a good thing. That is not a, a holy thing. That is not a proper spiritual thing. Uh, it is demonic deception. What you've made contact with is a, a is, you've made contact with a familiar spirit, and you'll want to take steps to uh, stand against that. You'll want to take steps to resist that devil until it flees from you. Okay. You, it, it is interesting, many people who are looking for an inner spirit guide, uh, they'll end up, it's like a trend, I don't know if it's still continuing, I haven't looked at it recently, but over the, 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 the previous decade, people who would you know, pursue spiritism, and they'd find their inner spirit guide, would end up commonly, very commonly, worshipping the Black Madonna, now, how does that happen? You say, what's the black dem- Madonna? Well, you know, ask Rabbi Google. You can get. We don't have time to get into it. It's demonic worship is what it is. Uh, it's just weird that all these spirit guides are pointing people to the black Madonna. John Phillips talks about the, 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 the body of a man is designed to protect his soul and spirit from outside influences. But in order to be spiritually sensitive, many people will take up a vegetarian diet. Hitler was well known for his pursuit of the occult. He and his high command adhered to a vegetarian diet. It would facilitate their insight. And then you see it commonly. There's a connection between the New Age movement and vegetarianism. And then, you know, uh, some people go beyond vegetarianism into veganism, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I've met some vegans over the years and, 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 if, and a few were saying, um, <laughs> praise the Lord, you know, it's good. Uh, Daniel stuck to a strict vegetarian diet in J- Daniel chapter 10, watch this, Daniel chapter 10 verses two through three. Daniel was mourning for three full weeks. He says, I ate no present blood. bled. bled. <laughs> I ate no present, I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till, the three, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Um, there, again, there's nothing wrong with vegetarianism. As a matter of fact, it's one of the, we typically try to do two seasons of prayer and fasting here at MBT. And one of the ways to facilitate prayer and fasting is we'll recommend the Daniel diet. It's a great way to keep up your strength uh, but also to enable you to be more spiritually sensitive. It's a it's a it's a path to humility. God, I'm craving, a, you know, like my body's craving that cheeseburger right now. That's just a teaching point for me of how desperately I really need you. Um, you are my supply. Just be aware of the possible spiritual connections. And sure enough, in Daniel's case, three weeks of prayer and fasting, on a, ve- a strictly vegetarian diet and. He got a spiritual visitor. You'll read about that in Daniel chapter 10 in verses four through the end of the chapter. He got spiritual contact and it was from the Lord in that case. So just you want to be aware um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're pursuing a vegetarian diet for spiritual purposes, if you're meeting inner spirit guides, eh, that's not how it works. The Holy Spirit, how he speaks to you is through this book, all right? Uh, what he, what he, will lead, he will bring God's truth to bear in your mind, and so uh, just be aware. Now, the conditions before the flood and after the flood, they're different, and what we see before the flood will not be restored until the time of Christ's millennial reign. So it'll be restored pre-Genesis chapter nine will be reset back to that during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, and you'll see clues to that in scripture. Here's a very plain one, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse six says the wolf shall, shall dwell with the lamb. Well, the lamb right now is on the wolf's menu. Why? Because the lamb is delicious. Yes. Everybody knows that. Well, dogs aren't dumb, they know that too. Well, during the millennial reign of Christ, the wolf and the lamb, they'll be litter mates, right? They'll, 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 they'll be fine together. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. A baby goat's delicious. The leopard knows, well, in the millennium, the leopard's eating alfalfa. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, a fatling, and the lion's gonna say no to that? Yeah, because he's eating oats. And the little child shall lead them. Okay, so so this, this pre-genesis, this pre-flood, uh, um, um, Animal kingdom economy, it will be restored during the millennial reign of Christ. But here, from Genesis 9 to present day, man, thank God, becomes a meat eater for the very first time. No longer vegetarians, ribeye. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, God. Ribeye is on the menu, but there's no consuming of blood. That's not allowed. Look at verse 4. But the flesh with the life thereof which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat, and surely, now, so you're not gonna eat the blood of the flesh that you consume, but watch this. Now we're getting into it. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. The blood of your life is a big deal, God says. And at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, and at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. If you kill, you will be killed. Do you see that? If you kill, God says, you deserved, you just earned a death sentence. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for the image of God made he man. So now, for the first time, capital punishment is required. Why, there has to be order in humanity. If you take a life, your life is forfeit. So here, get this down in your notes, human government, God is establishing human government. So now we're in this age of this dispensation of human government. Under Adam we saw the age of innocence in the garden. Then we saw the age of conscience after the fall and now we're in the age of human government. When we get into Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we'll see the establishment of human government. Why do we need human government? Well, get this down in your notes. Sinful man was wiped out in Genesis chapter seven, but not sin. Sinful man was wiped out, but not his sin nature. If there, were, if there was no governmental authority, like if today all government authority vanished, what do you think would happen on the mean streets of Kansas City? Would it just be, uh, 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 you know, just love and hugs and kisses and everyone taking care of their fellow man? Thank God, finally, the man is out of our hair and we can finally be, we're free to be everything that, that, that God intended us to be. Would we enter into a utopia? No, it would have been a post, it, I mean, we'd, overnight, we would turn into a post-apocalyptic hellscape, right? That's what would happen. This is why God ordains governments. They're the powers that be. Romans chapter 13 tells us to respect this order that is ordained of God. Let every soul be subject unto higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Because he sets it up right here in Genesis chapter 9. You resist the power of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. This is why over and over in scripture you see that the people need good rulers. They need good governmental authority because when the the wicked rule, it's miserable for everyone but when the righteous rule, it's great for everyone. Uh, That governmental authority is ordained of God. Humanity is to submit to it by the will of God. If we do what is evil, we should be afraid. If we do what is good, uh, we should be at peace. Verse four says why, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. All right, in verses eight through 17, we see God now makes a new covenant with Noah and humanity. Let's pick it up in verse eight. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl and of the cattle, and of every beast, of every beast on of the earth, with you, from all that go out of the ark, to every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be, uh, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So right here, in verse eleven. Again, you see it, if you don't believe in a universal, global, catastrophic, right? Comprehensive flood, then you're actually not a Bible believer, because his whole point was is this flood destroyed all flesh. And again, you remember, we saw that it went uh, as much as 20 to 23 feet, maybe 25 feet, over the tops of the highest mountains. That's what the Bible says. If you're going to be a Bible believer, you believe in a complete, total, global flood. Uh, then he's saying, neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore. Okay, so let's talk about the Noahic. This is what is commonly called the Noahic covenant. Yes, covenant theology is biblical as long as you're following biblical covenant theology. Uh, there's a. There's a a lot of what's called covenant theology that, that aims to, to make out that, that God's done with the nation of Israel, that the church has replaced Israel, and, and uh, it ends up turning into a very um, uh, wicked thing in terms of the tactical, practical outcomes, uh, in terms of how God's people will view the chosen people the nation of Israel. You don't want to steal what God gives to Israel, what God promises, what God wrote to Israel and try to make them and apply them to the church. So whenever I'm talking about covenant, covenants in the Bible, covenant theology, right? We want to pursue what the Bible says about the covenants that God makes with men, amen? So let's look at this Noahic covenant. It's passed on from Noah to all future generations and extends even to the animal life. Never again will all flesh be cut off. Okay, never again. I won't extinguish all flesh ever again. For example, not everything, not everyone dies during the time of great tribulation. The day of the Lord begins in great woe, in great tribulation, okay? And so here's how Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 21, He says, then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. What's coming actually will be worse than anything that's gone before. And we've already seen two cataclysms. Uh, We saw one between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. We saw another one in Genesis 7 and 8. Okay, well there's a bad one coming. Uh, It'll be a time of great tribulation. It'll be a time of great trouble. Um, The world's never seen anything like it. And look at how bad it is, verse 22. And except those days, what days? The days of great tribulation. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. It would destroy all life on earth. So for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Why? Because God made a covenant with Noah and by extension all living flesh. Never again will all flesh be comprehensively wiped out. That's part of the covenant. Never again will there be a total destruction by a flood. Uh, That's part of the Noahic covenant. But there's a future destruction coming that won't be by flood, it'll be by fire. And we saw this passage from the beginning of our study in Genesis. Second um, Peter chapter 3, verse eight says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. So again, the context here is prophecy. What's God doing with mankind? And if you're gonna understand how prophecy unfolds, you have to know this. Don't be ignorant of this. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And we already have looked at a few millennial day pictures us, but particularly in Genesis chapter 1. You can go back and go to mbtkc.org. You can get all those messages. God operates in millennial day time frames, and the biggest picture that we saw was the Sabbath. you remember that? Six days of labor followed by a day of rest. And when you look at the time, oh, let's look at the time, Usher's chronology puts Adam, the creation of Adam and Eve at 404 BC. What's today? Today is 2021. Uh, we're nudging into the seventh millennial day, which is six days of labor, six days of human labor, human activity, God dealing with man, followed by a day of rest. The day of the Lord over and over again in your Bible is called a day of. Anyone? Anyone, anyone? Wait, let me get my, my Ben face. Anyone, anyone? <laughs> it's called a day of what? Rest. rest, it's called a day of rest. Six days of labor and then a the day of rest and so this is one of the reasons we say we know we're living in the last of the last days. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but long suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. You know, the Bible says Jesus is coming back, but I don't think it's true, and everything continues the way it was. I mean, it's just always been like, that. no, God works in thousand-year days. That's why you have a tough time seeing it. You can't even live out a whole day. You know nothing in terms of everything, okay? So, so it's coming, and the reason you haven't seen it, was because God didn't want to send anybody to hell. He wants all to come to repentance, but the day of judgment is coming. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. So there it is. Uh, There is another judgment coming. It won't be by flood. It will be by fire. Uh, And it's, it's comprehensive. It's the heavens and the earth. Now, let's pick it up in verse 12. Genesis 9, verse 12. Next, God says, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set a bow, my bow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. "'And I will remember my covenant, "'which is between me and you "'and every living creature of all flesh, "'and the waters shall no more become a flood "'to destroy all flesh. "'And the bow shall be in the cloud, "'and I will look upon it, "'that I may remember the everlasting covenant "'between God and every living creature of all flesh "'that is upon the earth. "'And God said unto Noah, "'This is the token of the covenant "'which I have established between me "'and all flesh that is upon the earth.'" So let's talk about this sign of the covenant uh, we enjoy seeing the sign of the covenant. Can you imagine the, the very next rainstorm after the flood of Genesis chapter seven and then the storm clouds start rolling in again and everybody just like goes into a fetal position, PTSD. We already broke up the ark to make a village. and I mean, just like horrible. You know, everybody just, oh, we're all gonna die. No, God had to tell The the atmosphere is changing. Before there was no rain and, and now the clouds are gonna keep bringing rain, but it's not going to destroy all flesh and the bow in the cloud is proof of this covenant. So it's good for us, but it's mostly for God. I'm gonna see this bow and I'm not gonna let you put me on my last nerve and wipe out humanity again. Thank God for the rainbow. So there are a lot of, let's, the rainbow is the sign of this covenant, there are many unique things about the rainbow, so let's think about a few of them. Uh, the rainbow comes into existence, that is proof that the atmosphere has changed. It's set in the cloud, and so don't miss that. This rainbow is set in the cloud. Who comes in the clouds? Jesus. Well, Yeah, Jesus, okay, so there's a picture here, it's foreshadowing the coming of Christ. The very next time the rainbow appears is Revelation chapter four and verse three. I looked, verse one says, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be be hereafter. So here is John representing the church. He is raptured up to the throne of God after seven letters are written to seven churches. So in Revelation chapter one, you have the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the picture. So Christ shows up in Revelation chapter one. He deals with the church in Revelation chapters two and three which pictures the church age, and then after dealing with the church age, the bride of Christ is caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, First Thessalonians chapter 4. So here's John cut up. He's with the Lord. He's in the throne room of God, and watch this. Revelation chapter 4 says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne." And he that sat was to look upon like jasper and a sardine, uh, a sardine or a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an er emerald. There was a rainbow round about the throne. So the rainbow is actually biblically associated with the glory, the mercy, but also the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, remember, Noah gets off the ark, what's the first thing that he does? He sacrifices, he worships, he's extravagant in his gratitude and his worship of God. So the 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 the, the rainbow, right, the promise of this bow comes after the altar of sacrifice. Don't miss that. Uh, God's mercy over all flesh comes after an altar of sacrifice. Isn't that how it works for you and I? That that reality of God's, that promise, uh, that assurance of God's grace and mercy over our lives. We who are, I mean, man, in the flesh we're sinners, aren't we? Um, That promise of no destruction comes to us after an altar of sacrifice. Thank God for Calvary, Amen? amen? So don't miss, the pattern is consistent. So it comes after an altar of sacrifice. Uh, you see Joseph, who is a perfect type of Christ, and we'll look at that when we study his life in Genesis. Uh, he wears a rainbow coat. It's a coat of many colors. Why? Well, because he pictures, he represents the person of Christ. It's a sign of royalty. That rainbow is round about the throne of God in heaven. Now here's the neat thing about rainbows. Rainbows, when seen from above, are complete circles. We see a bow. Right, We see half the rainbow. But from above, it's a whole. From above, it's a complete circle. So, so don't miss that. We see half the rainbow, God sees the whole thing. Have you ever been flying in a plane and you look down you see a rainbow and you see that circle in the clouds? It's pretty cool. Why can't we ever see that from the earth? From the earth perspective, we see the promise, but we only see the half we only see the part. God sees everything. This is his bow. What else about the rainbow? Oh yeah, the rainbow is God's sign for peace with him. Never again will I destroy all flesh. The rainbow is a sign of God's peace with man and the lost have stolen it, haven't they? They've taken the rainbow, and, and between the New Agers, they t- they've taken the rainbow, the alphabet mafia, they've taken the rainbow, and they use it to promote their agenda. What are they saying by that? We're gonna stand in the place of God as God, showing ourselves that we are God. We're not gonna submit to the God of the Bible for sure. We're gonna go away that's right in our own eyes, and oh, here's our banner, it's a rainbow. What are they saying? I will not be judged. I will not be destroyed for the way I'm moving forward in life. Do you see that? Isn't it very interesting that those who are in pursuit of rebellion against the word of God are saying, I will not be judged for this. This is not, this is not something I will be held accountable for. God will not destroy all flesh. Okay, so you have to study to show yourself approved unto God. Um, you, you have to read the fine print you know, in every covenant, in every contract, there's always the fine print. So yeah, no, you're right, another flood, another, another global catastrophic flood is not coming, but read the fine print. Let's just keep going in 2 Peter chapter three. He's promised no flood, but brother, sister, there's a fire coming. Uh, there is another complete and total cataclysm coming. 1 Peter chapter three, let's go back to verse five. You know, God's not gonna judge the world. God's not gonna deal with sin. Everything's continued as it was from the beginning. We're not even sure God's there. Verse five says, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. God did destroy creation. That happened, don't be ignorant of that. But the earth, right, verse 7 but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This same world that we say in our heart will continue as it is forever, uninterrupted. No, it's reserved for fire against the day of judgment and for the destruction of ungodly men. Again, look at verses 8 through 10. Don't be ignorant. Why the delay? Here it is. You can't see the time scale that God operates on because you're finite, he's infinite. A day to him is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So the day of rest and reset is coming. The day of the Lord, verse 10, will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. God's not willing that any would perish, so we should be willing to get the saving message out because judgment is coming. The wages of sin is death, and here's the problem. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have rebelled against our Creator. All of us have done wickedly, and all of us have done it on purpose, but God's not willing that any would perish. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ gave His life in order to buy ours back from our sin. and You know, your sin and rebellion against God enslaved you. You were in the bondage of sin. Christ's sacrifice, he shed his blood, he gave his life in order to buy ours back out of the bondage and the damnation of sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Revelation chapter 20 tells you that in this time when the, the, the 2 Peter 3 is describing where the heavens and the earth are melting with fervent heat, what's left is nothing. And every soul outside of Christ stands upon nothing before a great white throne. There's no place to hide because there's nothing. <laughs> and they stand before the God of creation and they're judged. They're judged in the scariest of all ways according to their works. I am so glad that my sin was dealt with 2,000 years ago. The idea of God judging me over my works, over my sin, to see if my name is found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that would be terrifying for me. Because how would I know? How would I know that I know that I know that I'm in good with God? How would I know that my good works somehow wash out my bad works? Are you kidding? There is none good. The Bible says there's none good. No, not one. It would be a terrifying thing for me to think about standing before God and him assessing me based on my works. My sin was dealt with at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. God's wrath over my sin was completely satisfied in Christ's sacrifice. I'm so grateful for that. Christ shed his blood to wash away my sin. Now when I stand before God, guess what? My works will be judged. But they're not gonna be judged in terms of, did I sin or did I live sanctified? That's not the issue. My sin was dealt with already. The question is, what did I do with my sanctified life? How did I serve? uh, Ephesians chapter two tells me, I'm now the workmanship of God created unto good works. First Corinthians chapter three says, every work is tried of what sort it is. In other words, as a steward of the living God, did I invest my life for God's glory or did I live it for this world, for this earth? Anything that's lived for this world, for this earth, it's consumed by fire. Anything that's investing the word of God into the souls of men, that becomes reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But I'm not judged there for my sin. Is this making sense? So there's a day coming after the day of the Lord, the millennial reign of Christ, when there will be, an, there'll be one more reset and the heavens and the earth will melt with fervent heat. And as a result, that ought to cause us to tremble. God's not willing that any would perish. He's willing that all would be saved. And so we should be willing to live the life that he's called us to. Look at verse 11, 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Why? Well, because we know what's coming. Look at verse 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Knowing what's coming, that God's not willing that any would perish, but ultimately, all of creation will be reset one more time. You say, how could God do that? Why is he so harsh? Why would we rebel against our creator? Why, why be so foolish? Make your own universe, and then you can set up your own rules. Wake up, this is the one you live in. Okay, you can't do anything about that. And absent being in Christ at Calvary, absent calling on him as your Lord and Savior, you will stand upon nothing before a great white throne. And there's no getting around that. You say that's not fair. Well, it doesn't matter if it's fair to you. It's fair in the mind of your creator. And that day is coming. Just as surely as the sun rose this morning, that day is coming. How much more should we live in fear and trembling for the lost? Knowing that this great reset is coming. There's, I, mean, the fine, I mean the fine print says anything that's happened in the past is nothing compared to what's coming in the future. What manner of persons are you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You only got today to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no promise of tomorrow. Are you living Christ? God's not willing that any would perish. Are you giving the whole of your life to his mission? You say, well, I've got a job. Well, use it for the glory of God. You need to learn this book so you can tell it's truths to those that God has put in your life. You are an ambassador for Christ. This world is not your home. Like Abraham of old, you're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. You say, no, I'm not. Well, that's because you're ignorant of a few things. Keep coming, we'll clue you in. You're either a Bible believer or you're not. You're either gonna take this book as the very word of God or you're gonna explain it away as writings of men about God. It's just a bunch of fables and myths that, that, that teach us how to live a better life. Man, I would never waste my time with that. You're either a Bible believer or you're not. There's a, there is a reset coming. Everybody's talking about the great reset and how we should all be glad economically to be communists. They want to they wanna change over the, 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 you know, communism actually has never worked out for the church. Did you know that? That, that has never been a good thing uh, for the kingdom of God, but, you know, whatever, the church will thrive, whatever men set up. There is a reset of creation coming, and this one will be taken away. It'll be removed like a garment. You know what you do when your clothes are stinky at the end of the day? Uh, you just peel them away, and you throw them in the hamper, hamper don't you? Um, That's what's happening with this world, the course of this world, the fashion of this world. It's all gonna pass away. The only thing that remains is the person of God, the word of God, and the people of God. We got a a mission from on high. (laughs) There's a kingdom of darkness that we have to raid for the glory of God. There are souls that are lost in sin and if we don't say we're gonna invest our life in winning and training and sending, well then how is this world, how are we gonna reach the nations? How is this world gonna come to Christ? Breaks my heart to think about people going into eternity separate from God forever, burning in a lake of fire when God himself is not willing that anyone would endure that. You know the best thing, you say, well, I, well I, talk to, I, I talk to Christ about, you know, I talk to people about Jesus all the time. Well, do you live him? Are you this person living in all holy conversation? It's a holy, a separated life to Christ. Are you living in godliness? Or do people see a hypocrite? Well, you know, th- th- they said they believed, but then they never followed. This is why we're encouraging everyone, start a Bible study. Now again, if you've got five minutes to share the gospel with someone, take it. But, oh my goodness, let's start in Genesis and let's share the gospel with people until we get to the gospel of John. Amen? That's, uh, that we we want to do that. We need to get next. Ministry runs on the rails of relationships. you got to get next to people in order to get to know them, to build the relationship with them, to, to be able to have some common trust together so that the goods of the gospel can be delivered into their heart and their life. I'd like us to bow our heads and humble ourselves right now before the Lord. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, please pray for me because I've just been wasting my life, wasting my time, and that needs to stop today. I need to, I, considering the arc of biblical history, I've only got a moment in time and my moment in time needs to matter. Pastor, would you pray for me? I need to, I need to give my life in holy living and godliness. I need to be all about God's mission. Can I see your hands? Is there anyone like that in this service? Okay, so there's a number. Is there anyone that would say, please pray for me? I'm not sure that I'm born again. I don't know that I'm, I'm saved myself. And I'm worried that when the final judgment comes, I'll be destroyed in it. I'll be consumed in it. Pastor, please pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that God's my Father. I don't know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Can I see your hands? Is there anyone like that in this service? I don't know that I'm going to heaven. When I die, I'm not sure. Please pray for me. Can I see your hands? Is there anyone? Okay. I'm going to pray. And then this is your chance to respond. And I just ask, nobody but the, the connections team, nobody but the altar team be moving around. And those who need help, Some of you, you do need to go to the lobby and sign up for discipleship. I get that, okay? So it's not a hard, fast rule. I just don't want the room turning over while people are making decisions for Christ. We'll only take a couple minutes, but if you know you need help, come on. uh, As we praise, as we worship, let's meet together. Let's get in the word, let's pray together.